You're listening to the leader of the unofficial opposition, the rebel himself, Beyond the News with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. It's not so much that I want to talk about the budget. It's that I want to talk about worldviews. And believe me, a very strange day on Parliament Hill. Early in the, the morning, got news that someone had been taken, deceased, from the Valor Building. That's a building, it's on Spark Street between O'Connor and Metcalf, closer to O'Connor, right across, essentially, from where... Nate's Deli is now in South Block Whiskey Bar. And at first, nobody knew who it was. There were questions. Was it foul play? Was something going on? Then word broke out it was an MP. An MP had died in their office. And then we found out that it was Jim Hillier. Jim Hillier, 41-year-old MP from Southern Alberta. Father of four kids died of natural causes. So it led to a very strange day on on Parliament Hill. Wednesday is caucus day, so the House of Commons doesn't sit in the morning. There's no committees. The House is not in session. The MPs go off to their respective rooms and, and caucus with their other party members and talk about what's good, what's bad, what needs to be fixed, what they're working on, what's important to them, what they're hearing from their people in committee. And the Conservative caucus was distraught with news that one of their fellow MPs had died. The House leaders actually got together and shut down the House for the rest of the day. They did not have question period. Instead, there were comments, statements from Ron Ambrose, Justin Trudeau, Tom Mulcair, and all of them were brilliant. And we're going to play them all for you later on because it's important to hear them. It's important to say, here are people talking about a life. And and I know this audience is skeptical of Justin Trudeau. The best part of Justin Trudeau's speech, we'll bring it to you later, is when he went off script. But I said I wanted to talk to you about worldview. See, MPs were supposed to go head-to-head on the budget today, but nobody was in a partisan mood after finding out that one of their colleagues had died. But I still want to bring up, because we, we will honor Jim Hillier later, but I want to bring up the, the fact that within the budget is the liberal worldview, and it tells you so much. I keep saying, don't say Justin Trudeau is, when he does such, you know, when he makes a move on something, don't assume it's because he's an idiot. The man's not an idiot. Don't assume it's because he's incompetent. Look to see if it matches his worldview. Because if you understand someone's worldview, you understand so much about them. Justin Trudeau passed the budget with a very progressive worldview yesterday. And one of the ways you can look at it is how they tax families. Because a big part of Justin Trudeau's plan was, we're going to change the way families are taxed. We're going to bring in the middle class tax cut. We're going to bring in the Canada Child Tax Benefit. But they also took away a lot of things to do that. So if you look at what they took away and you look at what they brought in, it tells you something about them. And what it tells you is that to liberals, 
government is the key. Government is more important than the individual. Government is more important than the family. Now, if you understand politics and left versus right, progressives, conservatives, so on, you're not going to be overly surprised by this. But let me run down some of this. The conservatives brought in income splitting in the last uh, session of Parliament. They'd long promised it, and they said, when we balance the budget, we'll bring in income splitting for families with kids under 18. Income splitting has existed for years, brought in by Stephen Harper and the Conservatives. Income splitting has existed for years for seniors. So the idea was, let's give it to families with kids under 18. Eventually, it would have spread to everywhere, but they were bringing it in incrementally. The Liberals didn't like that. The Conservatives said this is good because it allows people to decide how best to spend their money. Rather than saying, let government give you a program, this is government saying, hey, you keep more of your own money, you figure out what's best for your family. Difference in worldview. The liberal worldview says government is needed to help you figure out what's best for your family. So the the liberals in their budget yesterday did away with income splitting, but they also did away with the universal child care benefit. They did away with the children's fitness tax credit. They did away with the children's arts tax credit, the education tax credit, the textbook tax credit. Other than the universal child care benefit, of the six things I mentioned, five of them were letting you keep more of your own money. One, the universal child care benefit, sent you a monthly payment. And if you were well off, guess what? It got taxed back. The liberals said, we'll do something better. We're going to give you a bigger payment. We're going to give you more money. And they are. They're giving, for many people, not all I understand, but for many people, more money. Is that the right way to go? Why are we taxing people only to send them back their own money? Because that's essentially what is happening with this new program, the Canada Child Tax Benefit. It was sold as a way to help the middle class. But let's look at what happens if you are the average family in Canada. Average household income in this country, is $76,000. Do you know what you get if you are an average family? If you have the average household income in Canada, and I ran the numbers, I said, all right, let's give everyone two kids because the average is, what, 1.57 or something? It's hard to split a kid into 0.57. So we'll go with two. So you got two kids, one's over six, one's under six, and you have a combined household income of $76,000. Well, now the government is going to give you, uh, let's see, $537 a month or $6,448 per year. Why not just let people keep more of their own money? This is something I've been asking since I made nothing. Why are you taxing me only to send me a check? Let me keep more of my money. But that's not the liberal way. I remember asking John Manley that at a daycare center in the south end of Ottawa as he was talking about how we have to have even more government programs like this. Now, let's go further up. Let's say you, have, you earn 90000 a year. Not unheard of in uh, the great city of Ottawa where bureaucrats make really good money on our dime. $90,000 household income. Two kids. Same scenario. One over six, one under you're going to get $5,600 per year. 
if you're making $90,000 a year, do you really need a $5,600 a year subsidy from the government? Because if they're taking it and then giving it back, that's essentially what they're doing. And they're not taxing any of this back. So even if you make a lot, let's say you earn double the average household income, $154,000 a year, the government's still going to be sending you $166 a month or $2,002 per year. $166 a month. Why do you need that if you're making $156? As I said, the universal child care benefit, people could say, yeah, well, they sent that out to people that made a lot more than that. Yeah, but they also had it taxed back. What the liberals did in replacing all of these little programs from income splitting to the fitness or the arts tax credit or what have you is say, we will take your money, we'll take our cut, the bureaucrats will all get paid, and by the way, their union dues through the Public Service Alliance of Canada or what have you will then help fund our re-election campaign later on, directly or indirectly, and... Everyone's going to get richer, and we'll send you your money back. Why not just let people keep their own? But that's not the liberal way. That is not how liberals view things. And so they decided that they needed to redefine the program. Again, why is someone making $154,000 a year getting $2,000 or any dollars back From the government. It's not a tax cut. It is a direct payment. What this does, what this does is get people accustomed, even those people who are well enough off on their own, it gets them accustomed to expect a government check. It expands the culture of dependency that all of us will eventually rely on when the government gets us hooked on those monthly payments. And it makes us look at the government in the same way that the liberals do, as a parent. A parent that's looking after us, paying our bills, and caring for us from cradle to grave. Remember, when it comes to economic matters or how they deal with ISIS or anything else, don't assume they're idiots. Look to see if it matches their worldview. And the budget yesterday, the $30 billion deficit, the changes to the taxes, All of it matches Justin Trudeau's progressive worldview that sees government as the be-all, the end-all, the alpha and the omega, the solution to every problem. Unfortunately, while he may not be an idiot, while he may not be incompetent, he is most definitely wrong. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. Back in moments. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. Bit of a strange week for politicians. A rough week for politicians. Yesterday, of course, Rob Ford dying on what was already a very busy news day. It was budget day with the terrorist attacks in Brussels. Rob Ford passing away at age 46. 
And then today, uh, uh, news of a few different things. Um, we had a death of a former CJOH reporter, Queens Park staffer, Leon Corby. Uh, man, I didn't know, but many people I knew did. Um, they were bringing that up online. Uh, Arnold Chan, liberal MP, announcing his cancer's back. And, of course, the news that um, Jim Hillier had passed away at age 41 in his office. So they shut down question period today, and instead they simply had member statements then adjourned for the day. Committee work was suspended. I think MPs just in shock that one of their colleagues had died in his office. And although there may be partisan stripes, they may take shots at each other. There are times when everyone comes together as one. And given that it was a conservative MP... Ronna Ambrose was given the first opportunity to stand up and speak. Here is part of what she said. Mr. Speaker, today is a sad day for our conservative family and for our parliamentary family. Uh, our colleague and friend Jim Hillier passed away very suddenly this morning, and I thank you for your kindness this morning. This has come as a shock to all of us who knew Jim and worked closely with him and was a friend. But most of all, Mr. Speaker, our thoughts and prayers are with his family, with his wife, Libby, and with his kids, who have these fantastic names, London, Taylor, Asia, and Nation. Um, I spoke with her this morning, and she wanted me to pass along her thanks for all of the kindness. Jim was a member of our family. He was a precious member of our family. He was passionate about his work. I was the only one to offer my sincere condolences to the family and those close to Jim. Jim spoke very good French, and he was very proud of that. I know that the thoughts of every member of this house are with his family today, and I've heard from many of you all of us have, and I want to thank you for your kindness. I want Canadians to know that Jim was so proud to represent his constituents from the riding of Medicine Hat, Cardston Warner, and before that, the riding of Leftbridge, where he was first elected in 2011. Now, he described the job of being his MP as the job that he had wanted his whole life. But being, before being elected, Jim was an entrepreneur. Like so many Westerners, he was very proud to make a living in the natural resources sector. He also brought with him to Parliament an understanding and a great sympathy for the concerns of regular, hard-working Canadians, and it really showed. When you talked to Jim, it was like talking to a neighbour. It was clear that he loved his life, he loved his wife, he loved his community, and he loved his job. He was very open, very honest, and a very humble guy, and he had a goofy sense of humour. Um, and you know, he was the kind of guy that you were proud represented you, and you felt you could approach. And he took his job very seriously. And as I said, he had a goofy sense of humor. He had something funny he said in the media recently. He was from southern Alberta. That says something about him. And he was talking about Donald Trump. He was asked about his views on Donald Trump. And he said, well, I where I come from is redneck, and we're not that redneck. <laughs> Conservative leader Ron Ambrose speaking about uh, Jim Hillier, a man who was known for, as uh, Pierre Poiliev said on uh, these airwaves earlier today, known for his stance on property rights but also known for being um, a defender of the agriculture industry, for being strongly pro-life. All of that, whether people agreed with it, disagreed with it, set aside today. And I give high marks to Justin Trudeau for 
his comments, which at times were just spoken not from a script, but straight from the heart. Like all of us, I learned of Jim's death this morning with shock and disbelief. His youth and the suddenness of his passing have blanketed the hill with a weighty sadness today. And I know that this heaviness will remain for quite some time. For while we sat on opposite sides of this house, we were all part of the same parliamentary family. We are all here, each and every one of us, in service to this great country. And that certainly was the case with Jim. He was a valued member of his party, a hard-working public service, a servant, and a strong voice for his community. We will all remember how he served Canadians with great passion and conviction. Jim's presence will be missed on the hill today and all days. We will stand united and support one another in our grief. On behalf of the Government of Canada and all Canadians, I want to extend my deepest, most heartfelt sympathies to Jim's wife Livy and to their four children. Know that your husband and your dad served our country well. May you find strength in the faith that sustains you during the difficult days ahead. If this House and this country is made strong by the broad range of people and voices that serve it, then this morning we have certainly been diminished by Jim's passing. Repose en page. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, and finally, want to bring you some of the words of New Democrat leader Tom Mulcair, again speaking in the House after the news that Jim Hillier, an MP, passed away at age 41. Mr. Speaker, it was with great sadness that we learned today of Jim's passing, and it is with equal sadness that I rise today to pay tribute to that colleague of ours, Jim Hillier, a husband a father, and a parliamentarian taken from us far too soon. Catherine and I wish to extend our heartfelt condolences to his wife Livy and their four children. Our parliamentary family is in mourning today following the passing of our colleague Jim Hillier, and I want to express my very deepest condolences to his wife Livy and his four children. Passionate in his political convictions, who enjoyed overwhelming support from his constituents. His voice will be sadly missed. Tom Mulcair, leader of the New Democrat Par- New Democratic Party, speaking about Jim Hillier passed away. You heard many of the, le- the I think all of the leaders at some point in their speeches mentioned his faith. Jim was a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, a Mormon, um, a church of faith that's very prominent in the southern part of Alberta, where he was from, uh, sadly missed today by his family, but also by his colleagues on Parliament Hill, and shocking to many of the people that work there. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. Back in moments. You're listening to the leader of the unofficial opposition, the rebel himself, Beyond the News with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. You might have noticed it's been a busy couple of days in the news. I think I, I relayed the story yesterday 
of um, a senior liberal walking up to me in the foyer of the House of Commons and saying, well, Brian, I, I guess our budget's now the third most important story in the news cycle today. And that's because the prime minister was coming down to react to both Brussels and Rob Ford's passing. Well, lost in the middle of that is that there are new regulations in place for police when it comes to an issue in 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 Toronto. It's been called carding in Toronto. They are sorry in Ottawa. They've mostly called it street check, but it is essentially the same thing. It's police officers walking up and asking people who they are, what they're doing, and why they're there. Michael Spratt is a defense attorney here in Ottawa, joins me on the line. Now, Michael, am I explaining what was happening, carding and street tech, you know, in the general sense? Is that an accurate description? Yeah, in the general sense, these are interactions between uh, officers and members of the public when there isn't, you know, grounds to arrest the person or, or really even grounds to um, detain the person. It's sort of situations where the officers, you know, spidey sense might be going off. Um, but what we were seeing is that um, there were sort of, you know, more suspicious cases than that where it looks like the stats were saying that it wasn't just when the officer's spidey senses were going off, but it might be where there was some underlying bias or racism um, just based on the numbers. So that was the practice and, and there were some perceived problems with it. Okay. I mean, mostly from what I understand, perceived problems in the Toronto area, but as is often the case, the whole province gets hit when Toronto has a problem. Yeah, and I mean, the, the problems in Toronto uh, were reflected in the data in Ottawa, um, where the, the reported sort of instances of police uh, stopping, uh, detaining, um, collecting, and retaining information from people was happening disproportionately to members of Aboriginal and minority communities um, in numbers that, that vastly exceed sort of their representation in the population. Um, and, you know, there were some legitimate concerns raised, both anecdotally and through the evidence, that you know, this might not just be because officers are suspicious, but there might be some sort of underlying sort of prejudice bias, either subconsciously or consciously behind uh, the exercise of, of that power. Okay. Um, I am a little bit of a civil libertarian in that, don't you know, you don't have the right to ask me anything. We'll get into that in a minute. But let me just ask you this on, on the whole issue of bias and certain minority groups being overrepresented. I haven't been a court reporter in a while, but I have been told by people that are that if I went down to the Ottawa courthouse these days, I'd be quite surprised at uh, the overwhelming um, dominance of certain groups. So, I mean, is there is there perhaps reason that certain groups are being stopped more often? I think that the reason is this, and, and, a good and let, let me be blunt, rather than let me leave something lingering there, let me be blunt, Michael, and you can dispute or, or confirm. We have had for a long time a problem of Somali youth gangs in Ottawa, and I've been told that this is reflected in what you see at the courthouse. I think that might be um, a, a little blunt. I think a really good way to look at it is this way. Um, and, and let's uh, look at a law that, that may be changing, um, simple possession of marijuana. What we see there is a disproportionate number of minorities and, and um, sort of over-police groups who, who find themselves charged and before the court. And that's not because black kids and poor kids and Aboriginal kids uh, smoke more dope than, than anyone else. That's because that's who the police are looking at and that's who the police are charging. And, uh. and you, you know, so they're... 
the, wor- the worst thing I about Merrill. What you're saying, but I think that mm-hmm. I think that you know um, uh, when you focus on certain communities and when certain communities are over policed, um, that may be reflected in, in, in increased charges and increased matters before the court, but not because there's sort of a, a, an underlying criminality or anything like that. All right. So the new rules try to target what the government says are arbitrary and race-based stops to collect and store personal information. Uh, look, if you're not charging me, you don't have the right to stop me. You don't have the right to ask me for information. If I give it to you, that's up to me. I mean, isn't that always been the case or hasn't that always been the case? Yeah, that's always been the case. Um, that, that's quite right. But what these regulations do um, is they make it clear that that's the case and they impose a duty on a police officer. There's a power imbalance here when, you know, a police officer stops a, a young kid um, uh, and, and asks for information. Um, it's very hard sometimes um, for people who, who especially, you know, have, have been in communities that have increased police contact and maybe not necessarily the best uh, contacts with the police to, to, to say no. And these regulations impose an obligation on the police officers to just make sure that the citizen knows what their rights are um, and imposes some some uh, obligations on recording what happened. So they have to tell the person that they don't have to answer questions. They have to tell the person why they're, why they're seeking that information. And then they have to record that information um, with reasons um, so it can be documented um, and so that we can have sort of accurate evidence. So, uh, you know, in the next two years, as is mandated by the regulations, we can reflect back right. on this practice and see if uh, things have changed or see if there is a problem when we have sort of this accurate record keeping. I get why police want to do this. And I also get the inclination to say, you know, get lost. I don't know you anything. You know, there are certain areas where police know that certain types of crimes happen. And so if they go in and they ask, hey, what are you doing here? Tell me your name. Uh, you know, where do you live? It might disrupt crime going on. And, and I think that's part of why they, they, they like to use this. Am I correct? Yeah. I mean, I've never seen a, a tool that police officers don't want to use. I mean, the, the argument is often, um, look, if we do these sort of things, we can detect more crime. Um, and let's be clear, police always have the power to stop and detain somebody in, in suspicious circumstances. I mean, if there's been a, a break-in in the neighborhood and they see, um, you know, a guy walking down the street in the middle of the night carrying, you know, a crowbar and a big bag over their shoulders, um, they're allowed <laughs> to stop and detain that individual um, and, and, you know, and question that individual for, for investigative purposes. And then they call you. And, and then they call me. But what, I mean, what would also... Um, what sort of doesn't help in in stopping and deterring crime is is um, you know you see a group of of youth at a bus stop. Um, you might know one of them is uh, has run afoul of the law or has been charged with something in the past. To stop all of those individuals um, when there is no suspicion that they've uh, committed any crime or or connected to anything, find out who they are, where they live, what car they drive, where they're going, why they're in the mm-hmm. neighborhood. And then record that information where it could be used later on. That is that is the point where sort of the power imbalance and the retention of this information can um, the, the cost of of sort of engaging in that practice um, as much as marginal benefit. As much as I believe in the ability of anybody being stopped by the police to tell them to take a hike if they don't uh, if they haven't done anything wrong if they're not facing charges. If you're not facing charges, you don't owe the police anything. But as much as I believe that, 
I also know from my own experience, I grew up in Hamilton. It's a, as I keep telling people, it's a bit of a rougher town than Ottawa. All the kids that paid attention, the, you know, the keenest attention in law school in, or in law class in high school uh, and also to weights and measures in math were the drug dealers. These were the kids who were going to break the law and they wanted to, I mean, they knew what they could and couldn't do. And I suspect that then in most cases, that's that's what's going on with the people that are, are breaking the law. In in some ways, I feel like this is um, saying to police, you've got to protect stupid people from themselves, because I think most cr- actual criminals no, they don't have to tell the police anything. And you're just protecting people that don't know what the law is by making the police announce. You don't have to tell me anything, but what's your name, son? Yeah, I mean, what what I think sort of clear rules and clear recording obligations, this isn't about protecting people who are, are breaking the law. This is protecting the kid who's done nothing wrong, who's been stopped 15 times for no reason, um, not being informed about his rights and had that information recorded and, and disclosed. Um, you know, our, our laws, uh, you know, and our fundamental freedoms um, they're not there to protect the guilty. They're there to protect the innocent and to sort of have um, requirements of the police about what they can and can't do, um, what information they have to provide, and importantly, protections about, you know, that they have to record and give reasons and rationale for, for what they're doing. So if there's any question in the future, that kid who has been stopped 10 times for no reason can go back and request that data and, and look at the data and see what the justification is, and it exposes problems. So, These regulations don't protect the criminals. They protect okay, so not, not you and me, because you and me aren't the people getting stopped, but they protect the people who, the innocent people, who are I, affected most by police contact. As much as I can be pro-cop, my interactions with the forces are not always great. So uh, let, let me end with this. We're almost out of time. So if someone is feels like they are being harassed and they haven't broken a law, but they're constantly stopped. They are able to go and say, show me what you have on me. Show me why you keep stopping me. Yeah. So these regulations kick in uh, January 1st, 2017. There's no sort of built-in consequence to the police. But one of the important parts here is that police officers need to uh, receive training and one of the things that they're required to disclose to you is how and when under access to information and freedom of information requests, you can request um, their justifications of, and their uh, notes about their interaction with you so you can find out why you're being targeted um, and if there's sort of a systemic problem uh, going on with our police forces. All right. Matt, Michael Spratt is a defense lawyer here in the nation's capital. If, uh, if you get in trouble, maybe give him a call. Uh, Michael, thanks for all this. Anytime, Brian. Stick around. We are not done yet. Plenty more to come on Beyond the News here on News Talk 580 CFRA. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly. Join the resistance on Facebook and Twitter at CFRA Ottawa. As you just heard in my conversation with criminal defense lawyer Michael Spratt, I, I get a little antsy about governments watching over me. I, yeah, no. No. Why, why are you doing that? 
don't like people watching over me. You, you don't need to. Why do you need to know everything I'm doing? And don't tell me if I'm not doing anything wrong, I don't have anything to worry about. That's not a good answer. The other day, I called up for insurance on a new car. Well, not a new car. It's a beater, let's face it. But I called up for insurance, and um, the insurance company said, well, we've got this device. If we send it to you and you install it on your car, you'll get a discount. Well, what's the device do? Well, it lets us monitor what you're doing. It lets us see how fast you're going and where you go. And how, No. No, because I know what's going to happen is that they will turn around, and if I get in an accident, they'll say, well, you know, 35% of the time you were speeding, Brian, and we have doubts about what happened in this particular instance, and therefore, we're going to deny your claim. Uh, no thanks. I'm not a fan of Big Brother, and if you believe in individual rights, individual liberties, if you are suspicious of government as I am, as I think most conservatives should be, then you're not crazy about this, which leads me to photo radar. This is something that is being talked about across Ontario now because John Tory, a man I know, a man I like, who I often disagree with, but a man I know and a man I like, used to be a talk radio host, by the way. He's the mayor of Toronto now. And standing beside Kathleen Wynne said, hey, I'd like to have photo radar for Toronto. Well, that led Ottawa City Councillor Riley Brockington to say, yeah, we should have photo radar for Ottawa, too. Sounds great. No. No, I don't think so. Well, that's been put off. It's going to public consultation. It's going to study. And if you oppose photo radar, you need to jump in there and make sure that your voice is heard. Earlier today on Ottawa Now, uh, Kirsty Cameron sat down to talk with Riley Brockington about how that vote and that move at City Council went. Councillor Riley Brockington of River Ward introduced a motion simply to ask the province for permission to use the tool in order to deal with traffic enforcement, to crack down on people who are speeding. Now, some councillors, particularly Councillor Keith Egli, said there needs to be more public consultation first. This is not something that can just leapfrog to council. It needs to go to committee. So in the end, council, including Councillor Riley Brockington, who brought this issue up, all voted to refer this debate on the issue back to Transportation Committee in May. That's May 4th. That'll be debated and discussed. To talk about it now, I'm joined by Councillor Riley Brockington. Good, Good afternoon. afternoon. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. So I have to ask you, I, I know speeding has been a big issue in your ward. This is something you're concerned about. But why take the issue of photo radar straight to council instead of taking it to committee first? It's an excellent question. Certainly in the uh, months leading up to today, all the research that my staff and I have been doing, looking at various jurisdictions where photo radar has been used and why it's being used in those cases and, and the evidence that suggests photo radar does lower speed limits. The intent was always to come to Transportation Committee later this spring. However, when Mayor uh, Tory of Toronto uh, a month ago, uh, with the Premier standing beside him, indicated that the City of Toronto would be interested in pursuing photo radar as part of its bundle of options to address speed enforcement, I thought I didn't want the City of Ottawa to be left out from this conversation. I wanted to put some pressure on the province, and I didn't think waiting a few months or even half a year to at least indicate our interest uh, was wise. So 
I'm all in favor of public consultation. I do extensive public consultation in my ward. And I thought that if permission is granted, that would trigger a very intensive review and consultation about the types of photo radar, the locations, prove to us that this is needed, and uh, have that engagement and consultation with the community. So that was always the plan. Council today felt let's uh, proceed with the staff report and presentation in May, and then that's the direction we're going. So uh, I embrace that. I'm certainly not opposed to that at all, and if that's where Council wanted to go, then let's have that on May 4th. I think it was Councillor Deans earlier quoting the mayor who said, it's kind of like going to a restaurant and asking for the dessert menu but, you know, with no intent of, you know, why would you ask for it if you have no intent of ordering the dessert itself? But your, your impression was strike while the iron's hot, get in on the conversation and make sure that Ottawa's part of it when this is being discussed. Yes, and our, our, our traffic staff is overwhelmed right now with various projects and particularly since photo radar is not permitted anywhere in Ontario, the, the uh, feedback I got from staff when I approached them a few weeks ago was, they said, well, wouldn't it be best to get permission first and then we'll invest our time, effort and energy in producing this type of report and engaging the public. So I was trying to weigh all this as well and uh, thinking about when the right time was to move this motion. But again, council's direction today was to go through committee. I'm not opposed to that at all. And I supported that motion. Okay. So we'll be going back to committee May 4th. I'm assuming you're going to get a lot of public feedback on this because we've seen already petitions springing up online in favor of having photo radar in Ottawa, another petition against photo radar. We'll have the discussion. We'll hear from the public on May 4th. But what I'm wondering before we let you go is you know are you thinking major roads like hunt club bronson places like that or are you thinking more of targeting residential neighborhoods like the ones that have been problematic in your ward the key thing is residential communities we're not where the speed limits are 80 but where people need to cross the street with their kids people want to go out and and do recreational activities where we get chronic safety complaints it's not those main arterial roads like hunt club it's more inner city inner residential communities that we need to focus on so in your mind that's what you'd be looking at yep that's correct and regardless of why he's looking at or why or you know what his intentions are i think the answer is no i'm not a fan of photo radar one of the questions that i'll put to you at nine o'clock when we open up the phone lines is do you agree with the idea of photo radar and residential streets on busy streets let me know what you think we'll get into that that coming up at the top of the third hour at 9. And if you're listening from out of town, we got a 1-800 number for you. So you can join the conversation from anywhere in Canada. Don't go away. When we come back, a couple of great interviews. Warren Kinsella, liberal master of the dark arts of the war room, will come on and explain why Justin Trudeau and Stefan Dion are wrong in not saying that we're at war with ISIS. Also, Matthew Fisher the country's greatest war correspondent, the country's greatest foreign correspondent, will drop by as well. He is in Brussels. We'll join him. Brian Lilly, Beyond the News, News Talk 580 CFRA. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. So this morning, 
Prime Minister Justin Trudeau was, to use a very Johnny Carson phrase, on another network. And he was asked directly, is Canada at war with radical Islam? Because this is what the French government has declared. Canada is at war with radical Islam. And he kind of hemmed and he hawed and he didn't want to say. Stéphane Dion was heading into question period today, in, or not into question period, sorry, but into caucus, and was asked that very same question. I want to play you his answer before we get to our next guest, Warren Kinsella, because it will give you a bit of an insight into Dion and the Liberal government's mindset when it comes to fighting ISIS. The term, the terminology, if you use the terminology war in international law, it will, it will mean two armies with uh, respecting rules, uh, and it's not the case at all. You have terrorist groups that re- respect nothing, so we prefer to say that it's a fight. We have a fight to, to win, and we will win it. They cannot win. Terrorists cannot win. It's, uh, it, it, there is no issue. They cannot win. Uh, each, each of the attacks will only strengthen our resolve. Warren Kinsella, master of the liberal dark arts, what do you say to that? Um, well, I guess I understand. I, well, I don't know what their motivation is, Brian. I think that perhaps they do not want to elevate ISIS or Islamic State or Daesh or ISIL or whatever you want to call it to the level of a nation. They don't want to suggest that ISIS is a country, which, of course, as we all know, is what ISIS wants to to claim. But, I mean, if you look at all of the definitions within international law, a country or a state is defined as two things, really something that's politically organized, which and, ISIS And they is, are. <laughs> which, whether we like it or not, they are. And they control territory. And as we all know, ISIS controls, unfortunately, a significant amount of territory. So... You know, whether we like it or not, we are at war with an entity that if it it's not a state, it's an awful lot like a state. I, you know, I, it's the same frustration that I had with the Harper guys who refused to call what we were doing with the with the fighter jets and bombing the snot out of ISIS positions. They refused to call that combat. There seems to be, and maybe there's legal reasons that nobody has explained to me yet, why governments don't want to say that we're at war. Maybe it's legal. Maybe it's political. Maybe it's a worry of getting uh, giving offense. But the fact is, I think you'd agree with me, Warren. We are at war with these people. Like it or not, they are at war with us. They're coming for us one way or another, and it's stand and fight or be bowled over. Again, getting back to the definitions, and I don't want to get hung up too much in semantics, and I I know you don't want either, but an act of war is committed when there's an act of aggression by a country against another with which, you know, it had previously been at peace. And all of that definition applies here as well. You know, there was a time at which we were not in a fight, to use Stefan Dion's word, with ISIS. Well, now we are, and they are committing acts of aggression against uh, Canadian citizens. Either their agents are, or the, their, well, as recently as last week at a, a Canadian Armed Forces recruitment center here in Toronto. So, I, to me, I don't understand. It's it's like those debates that I think you and I have had with different people when things like this happen. So when that knife attack happened here in Toronto a few days ago. 
I was debating with people on my website. They were saying, well, it's not an act of terrorism. Well, why not? <laughs> and I said to them, well, what is it then? I mean, it's it, they're not being nice. You know, it's not a principal disagreement. <laughs> what what else would you call that? You know, it is using uh, a, a physical violence against citizens or against agents of the state to make a political point. That is the literal definition of terrorism. So, I, but again, you know, I just don't understand why people get hung up on this stuff. We we're we've got troops over there in harm's way. We've got more troops under Trudeau than we had under Harper, which which pleases me personally. And they are on the battlefield. They're not just up in the sky. They are in, in the line of fire. That's as well, far as I, I know. You know that's I, war. I, I, I have some concerns. And when I first heard the description of what we would be doing in terms of training, I was actually supportive. But then I heard them describing what the training would be because I, you know I understand training. They kept referring back to Afghanistan. And having had family and friends there for 10 years, I understand intimately what the training that we used to do with the Afghan forces was. That we would we would train them in classrooms, we'd train them in the field, then we'd walk them to the front line and be part of their aggression against whoever they were fighting. But now they're saying, no, 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 we, we won't go to the front lines with them. It's, it's like advise and assist, and it's like, you know, look, the fire's coming for us. It doesn't matter how nice we are to the people at ISIS. It doesn't matter how nice the folks in Brussels were. The radicals are going to take us out because they disagree with who we are, just like they disagree with the fact that there are Christians in their midst, that there are Yazidis, that there are Shiite Muslims. I mean, they're killing Shiite Muslims because, well, you're the wrong type of Muslim. They are sick and twisted people. Yeah, and that's an excellent point, and it's a response to all of the fans, and I don't think there's many in Canada, but the fans of Donald Trump is the principal victims of ISIS are other Muslims, as you just pointed out. You know, the people who are being wiped out and subjected to genocide by ISIS are Muslims in the main. But, you know, as you've just said, really, the, the battlefield has shifted. It's not a traditional war as we experienced during the Great Wars, in Korea or Vietnam or any other recent combat, you know, as we saw yesterday in Brussels and previously in Paris and San Bernardino and, and so on and, and places like Ottawa, the battle is being brought to us. And, you know, if you draw comfort from the fact that, well, that doesn't meet some definition of war and they don't meet some definition of state, well, you know, I guess I would say, well, then knock yourselves out. But the rest of us know what it is, and it's foolish to be playing around with semantics when you've got people who are literally at risk of their lives, as they were yesterday in Brussels. Yeah, I'll be speaking with uh, with Matthew Fisher, probably the—I think he's the only real war correspondent we have left in Canada. He's in Brussels right now. That'll be coming up shortly. But um, I mentioned that this morning, uh, Prime Minister Trudeau was on, to use that Carsonian term, another network, and— he he was asked about the whole, are we at war with ISIS? And his answer was, well, to be a war, either side has to be able to win, and they can't win, so it's not a war. Again, it's back into semantics, and people are looking to try and find a way to to do whatever they can to, to not acknowledge the truth. I wish I could understand it. And Warren, it's not me picking on your liberal side. The conservatives did the same darn thing, and, and I wish I could just shake our leaders 
and make them wake up? I guess I, you know, I we're getting into the territory of psychology here, and maybe there is a hang-up that many people have got about the use of the word war. I mean, for me, I gave up on calling ISIS terrorists long ago, and I said, okay, fine. If you don't want to call them terrorists and you want to play around with dictionaries and Google, you know, knock yourself out. They're the enemy. They are the enemy. They've declared us the enemy, and they're clearly our enemy on any number of measures. And so we need to treat them as such. And, you know, that's why, as you know, you and I have talked about this many times, I objected as a liberal to Trudeau's previous position on ISIS, which was just basically, it seemed to be withdrawing completely from conflict. And in fact, what happened was when he got into government, and I think after the Americans and the Europeans spoke to him, he tripled the number of troops that we have on the ground. He, he definitely withdrew the CF-18s, but our combat commitment was greater than it had been under the Harper folks, and I thought that was a good thing. So, but, you know, again, it's a war, and they're the enemy. And the war is not going to disappear, however much people bury their noses in dictionaries. Yeah, well, it's, um, you know, I think back to the 90s when we were involved in Kosovo, and the the level of commitment that we had to missions like that, which was not a, a, a U.N. mission. I know everyone likes to think back in the Kretchen era, it was all just U.N. missions. It wasn't. We had more CF-18s. We had more troops on the ground than we do now. And and I think the stakes are higher now, Warren. And, and, and conservatives are scared of being called war hawks and... Liberals are afraid of uh, alienating a, a base, and both sides are playing domestic politics when what we should be focused on is beating what you rightly just say is the enemy. Yeah, and I, you know, the political parties, well, I mean, I guess, you know, their motivation is probably, you know, when you're in government and you are a government at war, when you're involved in war, those governments, if you look at history, have a tendency not to be reelected. So I understand their political reticence to, you know, describe what we're engaged in and as a war, and that's fine. But but guys, you know, this thing, these people are obviously highly committed. They are organized. They are well financed to the extent that we've never seen before, and they're a genocidal force. And they are now spreading yeah. beyond the Middle East and bringing the battle to us all over the world. And we have to take that seriously. Call okay. them whatever you want. Careful just... calling them a genocidal force. You're going to sound like Jason Kenney. Those are <laughs> well, the terms. Are. That, that, well, those are the terms he used. Before I let you go, I have to ask you: John Kerry and the Obama administration has declared that what ISIS is doing to Christian, Yazidi, Shiite, Muslims, and others a genocide. The European Union voted on this back in February 4th. When I talked to the old Harper guys, they said. Look, before the election, we were trying to get this done. We just wanted one of our allies to come along with this. Now the allies all have. Should Trudeau join in and say, yes, what's happening to these groups is genocide? I think so. And then no less than the United Nations has said so. As you know, uh, my former boss, Jean Chrétien, properly uh, declined to get involved in George Bush's action against Saddam Hussein because it lacked the support of the United Nations, because it lacked evidence that there were weapons of mass destruction. Well, in this case, the United Nations some time ago, almost two years ago, characterized what ISIS is doing to fellow Muslims in that region as genocide. 
and they, they've written actually more than one report on the subject. So if people are looking for the sanction of the United Nations, it's there. Yeah. I, I never look for the sanction of the United Nations. I say push the whole building into the East River in New York. <laughs> but you got John Kerry, you got the Vatican, you got the EU. I'm good. Yeah, no, it's it's there. It's really a question of people examining their hearts and their minds and saying, do I really think, I, I hope, but do I really think that these guys are going to disappear and go away? And it's quite evident after yesterday, they're not. And, They're not going to. And unfortunately, there's a good chance that those that went and fought there and came back will carry out the types of attacks we saw in Brussels. God willing, that does not happen. Warren Kinsella, thanks so much. Thanks, my friend. Enjoy your Easter. Happy uh, weekend to you yeah, when you get to Easter. it. Yeah, happy Easter. All right. Easter. All the best. Warren Kinsella, master of the dark arts from the liberal side of the aisle, but agreeing with me on many things there. That's why I talk to the man. Brian Lilly, Beyond the News, News Talk 580, CFRA. You're listening to the leader of the unofficial opposition, the rebel himself. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580, CFRA. If you want to get hold of me by email, it's easy to do. Beyond the news at CFRA.com. Beyond the news at CFRA.com. And Chris wrote in on the issue of carding, and he says, I grew up in a bad low income project and have experienced carding firsthand. There didn't seem to be a week that went by that I didn't get stopped by the police and questioned. Like you mentioned, I did pay attention in law class. I hope that doesn't mean you're a drug dealer. Chris, because those are the guys that paid attention more than I did. Um, Like you mentioned, I did pay attention in law class. During these stops, I would question why and if I was under arrest. When I was told I wasn't under arrest, I would say, fine, then I'm leaving. They would then say, you are free to leave, but if you leave, we will arrest you. Who's to say that still won't happen? Good point, Chris. And this is why I'm, I get why police want to do carding. But I also believe that we have individual rights and freedoms for a reason, and we have to be able to say, no. You know what? Get lost. You're not arresting me. You don't have a right to stop me. That's not the reaction of a criminal. That is the reaction of a free man. That's not the reaction of someone who has something to hide. That is the reaction of a citizen. The state has no business in stopping you and demanding your papers. If you want to give up the information, that's fine. But walking around saying, papers, please, papers, papers, give us your papers. No, I'm not on board with that. We can't be living in a, in a society where that's the issue. Can we, do we have to say police aren't allowed to stop? No. Absolutely, they should be able to stop you and say, hey, what are you doing? Why are you here? What's your name? What's your problem, son? They might get some information out of that interaction. It might stop crime. It might bust stuff up. That's all good. I'm fine with that. But if you decide that you're not going to do it, well then, hey, so be it. It's one of the topics that we'll go to at the top of the hour, 9 o'clock when we open the phone lines. 
And we'll ask for your calls on that. Coming up, we've got Matthew Fisher dropping by. He is the National Post foreign uh, affairs columnist and war correspondent. This is a man that if you don't read, you want to read. Also, Connie Bernardi from Magic 100 talking about entertainment because I can't be I can't be all depressing all the time. It can't be all news and politics and depressing all the time. Brian Lilly, Beyond the News. Stick around. More to come. On the news with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. If there is a hot spot in the world, if there is trouble brewing, there's one man that I know I'll find there. Ottawa's very own Matthew Fisher. He's the National Post's foreign affairs war correspondent, if you will, one of the best in the business around the world. I don't just, he's the best in Canada, one of the best in the world. Earlier tonight, I had a chance to chat with Matthew Fisher as he got ready to settle in for the night after a long day in Brussels. Matthew, this is not your first time in Brussels. You're a man that has spent time in the city before. In fact, a few months ago, you walked around Molenbeek, one of the areas where the the people responsible for the attack are, are suspected of living. People behind the Paris attack were sus- suspected of living. What is it that Canadians need to understand about Brussels that has made it a cauldron of uh, radical jihadists. Well, there are a couple of things. Uh, Certainly it is described in Europe as the epicenter of global terrorism. I don't really know how accurate that is because I don't know how many other centers there might be, but it certainly is uh, one of the hotbeds. That's indisputable. It's a little different than Paris where Uh, The people who are radical in Paris, the disaffected Islamists uh, who are uh, extremists, tend to live in the suburbs, that is, in the outer reaches, the outer circle of the city. In Brussels, they live smack dab in the middle. There are several uh, very large, they call them quarters here, but Arab quarters, uh, very large Arab populations within Within some areas, it goes up 70, 80, 90 percent. And certainly Molenbeek or part of Molenbeek near the main uh, square there, it is extremely high. So high that uh, other than journalists uh, today and a few also when I was there in uh, late November and early December, other than that, uh, you don't see anybody really but Arabs. Uh, Arab shops, Arab script written on all the menus. The food is all Arab. Uh, food, and uh, the dress is quite conservative. Uh, We are getting used to seeing quite a few women dressed in conservative Islamic dress in Canada and everywhere else. But uh, an added feature of of, uh, Brussels or Molenbeek is that quite a lot of the men are conservatively dressed too in an Islamic fashion. That is, they wear the long gowns, uh, and uh, they they wear Muslim prayer, prayer caps. Also, you see quite a few people with beards. Uh, the lingua franca in the street, without a doubt, is Arabic mm. everywhere. Uh, the architecture is European. There's still a big church in the center of Molenbeek. But, but, but the whole neighborhood has changed. 
but the neighborhood mm-hmm. has changed. The feel of the place has changed. The architecture still looks like a slightly scruffy European town that was built 60, 80, or 100 years ago. Yeah. Uh, so that's the lay of the land. There are quite a few mosques. Uh, they're hard to see. It's not exactly that they're hidden because anybody will tell you where they are, but uh, they don't have the big minarets or anything. They tend to be buildings that have been taken over and, and that have been turned into mosques. I've I've attended uh, prayers there, Friday prayers in a mosque uh, in early December. They're, they're very well attended. And... Uh, the people there initially are quite apprehensive about what you're doing there. Some of them, not many, but some of them warm up later. It's a place all what you get in Brussels uh, and what I found in a number of French cities too, particularly in the south like Marseille, is there's apprehension. The two communities, that is the Christians and the Muslims, view each other uh, with suspicion and apprehension, not so much hostility. I mean, they're not screaming at each other, but they're very wary of each other. And, and, I, and I guess the attacks this week will not help that, especially when these men have been living openly. Uh, the man that was arrested last week, and I'm sorry, I, I don't have his name in front of me, it, so it, it, it slips Abdel my mind. Salah. Yeah, Abdel Salah was living in the middle of this. Somebody oh. had to know. Well, somebody had to know. Now, uh, we don't exactly know what he did, but he was arrested about 500 meters from the apartment where he grew up. Uh, so he didn't venture far from the hearth, if you like. And uh, it is believed uh, there are reports in the Belgian press. I don't know how accurate they are on all of this stuff, but because uh, they tend to exaggerate. But uh, it is suggested that he moved around between a number of safe houses. Now, People would not instantly recognize him anyway. There are so many Arabs in the area that you could walk down a street and you wouldn't be hiding. Uh, People just wouldn't notice you because the person who gets noticed would be Brian Lilly or Matthew Fisher walking down that street because we're the ones who are different. But without a doubt, uh, quite a few of the people associated with the Paris attacks are from here. They're from one or two other communities in Brussels, too. And the other thing, Brian, is this community has, uh, according to the Belgian authorities, uh, supplied quite a few of the jihadists who are now in the Middle East, who are in Iraq and Syria, fighting for Islamic State. That is another feature uh, of this community. Uh, Uh, At this point, Matthew, I want to flip to Canada, because in your latest piece in National Post, you in addition to describing Molenbeek and everything else, you you take the current government to task and say, look, these guys are, are, are not taking this seriously. Uh, you don't think that Canada's doing enough. But you also say that um, we, we just have to realize that there are at least 100 people who are fighting for Islamic State there. Uh, that is true. That is absolutely so true. So we, we have to be worried or concerned at this point, right? Well, we, we should be. But my impression, and this isn't just the government, Brian. The, Brian, is, uh, Brian, the government is responding, in my opinion, to how the Canadian people feel. And if the Canadian people don't think it's a priority, then the government's not going to think it's a priority. And one of the reasons perhaps the Canadian people feel that way is the media have not done a sufficient job of explaining this. Uh, another thing, and it's a general malaise in Canada, we're very satisfied with the life we have there. So we're very detached from these things. I had thought 
that the uh, attack uh, on uh, the the soldier Vincent in Montreal or near Montreal at Saint Jean sur Richelieu might change that, and then the the, uh, the attack on uh, the the Canadian soldier Cirillo. Uh, who was standing guard at the war memorial, uh, Tomb of the Unknown Soldier and whatnot in Ottawa. That, that I think that's what it's called. Yep. Uh, that this would jar or jolt Canadians into uh, thinking more about this. That jar or jolt, I think, lasted a week or two. And uh, then there's been a relapse. Uh, if Canadians followed this every day, there are a huge number of attacks. Uh, there are attacks in Iraq, in Syria, in Pakistan, in Egypt. Uh, there was the Russian airplane uh, that blew up. Uh, there was a there was a bomb on a plane in Somalia just a couple of weeks ago. There have been all kinds of horrors uh, perpetrated against women in, uh, in Nigeria, uh, in Sudan, and, and and of course by the Islamic State in Syria and Iraq. And then you get into all the attacks against Western targets. Uh, it's uh, Belgium, it is uh, uh, France, it is Britain, it is Spain. Uh, well, and, and when these happen, Matthew, we seem to put up our avatar on Twitter <laughs> or on Facebook with a flag or something of that country and then say, I stand with you. And that lasts for a few days and then we move on. Well, that's certainly what the leadership does. I hate to say this because I absolutely do not want this to happen. I wish it on nobody, not only Canadians, anybody anywhere in the world, but maybe what it is going to take is something horrific at home. You know the 9-11 strike uh, in uh, Washington and New York 15 years ago certainly got the attention of Americans, a bit less so Canadians, but it did get their attention. Mm -hmm. Maybe that kind of super mass casualty is what it's going to right. take. Well, uh, I hope not. But right now, Canadians sleepwalk through this, and we can see it in the reaction of the government by withdrawing our combat forces. Uh, you know, well, I believe we should have a multi-dimensional approach to try to uh, come to grips with what I think is a huge and growing problem. I, I agree with we, you there, but but let me ask you this, and we'll have to leave it. Um, do you think that given... We, the bomb, suspected bomb maker in Brussels, and at this point it's still suspected because we don't know that he's the guy that made the bombs that went off at the airport in the metro, but the suspicion is he was trained in Syria, then went back. Do we, with at least 60 people that have gone to fight over there for ISIS and the like and come back, does that heighten the uh, the worry? Well, it heightens the worry, especially in Europe, because there are many more of them. But Australia is concerned about this. And I know the security officials in Canada and the United States are very concerned about this. I think they, too, must be frustrated that the Canadian people are not seized by this. And, Brian, I, I believe it's the Canadian people who have to think of this as important and appalling. And that is what will get the government to move, not just you and I talking about it. Unfortunately, it's going to take more than that. And what that may take is a really horrible attack, which, well, uh, as I said, I don't wish on anyone. Nor do I. Matthew Fisher, thanks so much. Uh, I know it's late in Brussels. We'll let you get some sleep and uh, we'll continue to read you in National Post and other post media papers across the country. Thank you. All the best, Brian. Stick around. This is Beyond the News with Brian Lilly. Back in moments.
Well, I couldn't convince her to stick around until late, so I'm sitting with Connie Bernardi uh, in the, what, what do we call this, the mushroom pod or something? I like to call it the atrium. It just the sounds atrium. more romantic that way. Yeah. Um, <laughs> they, there used to be these weird little stools here, and I think that's yes. where it got the name mushroom pod. Yes, but it's in the middle of the Bell Media building. Yes, where we actually have sunlight. It's a wonderful thing. <laughs> So there's a couple of neat entertainment stories coming up that I want to get to you. Um, one, Garth Brooks is about to move to Ottawa. Did I he know. actually buy a house? <laughs> Isn't it amazing for the longest? I mean, I've lived here my entire life, and I remember back like 80s and 90s to have an artist just come here once was a big deal, but mm-hmm. to have an artist come for like three days in a row is just he's ridiculous. got four shows or something yeah. doesn't he yeah he's doing two in one day and then he's got two separate shows on other nights okay but we couldn't convince him to take up a residency <laughs> the way he did at the wind well, casino it practically is a residency here in ottawa at the ctc so, so have you ever seen him no no neither have i but so he's like are the you Godfather. going i am going just okay, because now I i'm jealous see. i want to see what the hype is all about like, every time, you know, if you're a country fan, Garth Brooks is kind of like, in the 90s, was the big thing. Like, there was nothing bigger and, than And I hear he still puts on an amazing show. Yes. Which, you know, I, I always like going to see performers that put on a show. Went to Celine Dion. Do I look like a Celine <laughs> no, Dion fan? I was going to say yes, but... <laughs> no. <laughs> no, you do not. Thank you for no, that. No, you do not. But, went to see her in Vegas. Yes. It was amazing. She does. And and she's all about the performance, right? Mm-hmm. It's not and so I much think about he the is theater. Too. Yeah, he, he's got bare bones production on his show. It's really about him and the guitar and, and his band. It's really about the music and it's not about, you know, girls coming out and doing, you know, show numbers with, you know, a whole bunch of dancing. It's not that. And um, that's kind of like a rarity nowadays. It's like when when you think of Justin Timberlake, Bruno Mars, Beyonce, uh, Katy Perry, it's all about the theatrics. Mm-hmm. And and the one thing that I love about Garth Brooks, it's just about him and the music and his guitar well yeah a performer that uh, that passed away just recently david bowie i saw yes. him in both full theatrical production mode 1987 on the glass spider tour mm-hmm. at uh, exhibition stadium and that was huge and it's massive and you've got him descending out of the spider's mouth <laughs> and, and and you've got pyrotechnics and you know yeah. all this stuff and the next time i saw him it was him and um a woman from a modern dance company out of Quebec, but she traveled the world with him, I believe, from La 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 Human Steps. She was the only addition to him and a spotlight on How the stage. How awesome is that? Just complete opposite. And it was ama- both concerts were amazing for different reasons. Yeah. But see, you almost, but see, I, I think I would love to see, you know, all my favorite artists both ways. Like, you know, one where it's just all about the production and one where it's just stripped down and them just singing and, and that's what you focus yeah. on. A I lot think of them, though, you have to wait until they're washed up. <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, we're, we're, yeah, yeah, we're just doing smaller venues now because we want it to be intimate. Translation, but we by can't that, sell exactly. out anymore. But by that account, so Madonna should be doing a stripped down tour. Yeah, she <laughs> is, if you haven't heard. No, I haven't, really. Oh, she... she, um, she it wasn't her clothes that came off. Oh, Apparently, okay. she pulled the top off one of her female fans. Oh, really? Yeah. I no, I was actually talking about the music, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> Just Madonna. You know, because, you know, and, and I know we were talking about Garth, and now we're going to start talking about Madonna, but um, Madonna was, like, top ten list, one of my favorite artists on the planet. And uh, the last time she came to Ottawa, I was so disappointed in her show because it it seemed like she just, she tried so hard to be relevant and current. And, Mm -hmm. and at this stage of the game in her career, all you want to do is go hear the song. She's 74 now. Yeah, She's not close, but not really. (laughs) Um, But I want to hear like the old songs, like, like a virgin, get into the groove, express yourself. I don't want to hear her new stuff. And, and there's, um, 
you know, people that have been following classic rock have been dealing with this for a long time because some of these artists keep putting out new albums. Yes. And it's that fight. Do you, do they just play the new stuff? Yes. Or do they play the hits that people actually paid 80 to $120 to go see? I don't know what concert tickets cost anymore. They're expensive. They're expensive. Like Taylor Swift was in the 200s for, like, lower bowl and floor seats. So... They're getting up there. That's why she's so got that your nice... Your face is ten- like, what? <laughs> That's why she's got that nice place uh, next to the Kennedys and I all know. those other homes. I remember when I spent $25 on a concert ticket and I thought it was ridiculous. Like seeing Def Leppard and Aerosmith here in <laughs> Ottawa, Bon Jovi, like tickets were 25 bucks, And now yeah. you're like, it's, you know, a mortgage payment to go well, see an artist. we're old, so we remember we those are. days. But I'm younger than you, so that's all that This is true. This is true. I don't even know how old you are, but I'll give you that. Uh, We've got a pile of CDs next to to us, and these are just kind of sitting here. These aren't a prop. You didn't bring them in. No, I did not. I sat down, and I noticed this pile of CDs, and if you work in a radio station, TV station, eventually you see piles of books that people don't want anymore, piles of CDs. I looked at taking some, and I thought, where where would I play that? I know. It's become like a relic of the industry, has it not? Like, it, we don't, don't even play music off But I don't think anymore. it'll ever be like vinyl. No. Where, you know, I've got a, I've got a turntable at the house just to sit and listen to See, music. See, I'm still looking for one. I want to get one again because I, yeah. I, I grabbed all my vinyl from my parents' place. And I want to play vinyl again. But no one's going to reminisce about CDs. No, I don't think they're going to say, do you remember when Bon Jovi released the CD? Yeah, no one's going to say that. It, it's not the same. It's sad. Um, Adele is yes. an artist that um, you, uh, you're taking a bunch of people to see down at uh, Montreal. We are. So, of course, her world tour sold out everywhere. If you were not and she's on- not even coming to Ottawa. She's not. She's doing a whole bunch of shows, uh, Toronto, Montreal, Vancouver. Now, there may be a second leg to the tour so maybe she'll come to Ottawa but uh, for now she's completely missing it so we went and got a whole bunch of tickets for the Montreal show we're bringing down uh, 25 winners and a guest to Montreal that's overnight. not bad I know she's definitely on my list I tried to buy tickets for the Toronto and Montreal show and I was in that uh, holding space that they called it the holding room mm-hmm. so once you're there then you wait to see if you're actually going to get tickets it's not a guarantee that's how they do things nowadays uh, I just like the old-fashioned wristband yes. and wait in line. But you know what they make you do now? Because Garth Brooks is doing the same thing, and so is Adele. Um, you know how you used to be able to buy tickets, and then if you didn't want them, you could pass them on to a friend. and just mm-hmm. get, Now they actually make you go to the venue, and the person that purchased the tickets needs to be there, and that's the only way they'll release the tickets. Yeah. What? You so, get an email so like, confirmation, and then you go pick up your tickets for a lot of people. That is this them. to stop scal- uh, scalping from yeah, going on? Yeah, Garth Brooks is uh, huge against that, and so is Adele. She's like, if you're going to buy a ticket, I want the fan oh, yeah, to But go. as much as I like Garth Brooks, he's also against iTunes and launched his he own is, online because, music service. Yes, because he you really can only buy his albums at Walmart. He's in a partnership. But the, but the thing about Garth Brooks, though, he's completely taken control and ownership of his career. Uh, he has his own company that does his tours for him. He doesn't use the typical, like, Live Nation. Uh, you know, he doesn't go through the venues. He's got his own guy that does it. So there's this guy in Nashville that actually calls up all the radio stations and says, I've got 20 pairs of tickets for your radio station to give away. And, and it's all, like, this one guy, and it's micromanaged. But that's how he keeps the costs of his shows down so low. I think it was $65 a ticket, if I'm not Which mistaken. Which is a lot better than the other artists we've been talking yes. about. Yes, so you could be sitting so like in how the- much are, is Adele in Montreal oh, at the Bell Center? Well, what were the tickets when they went on sale? Yeah. They were like 125 Yeah. Yes. And Garth Brooks is 65 and, and it doesn't matter if you're sitting in the nosebleeds in the 300 level or on the floor. They're all $65. 
So it's just the luck of the draw when you call in. Like if you, or it's a little communist for a millionaire. <laughs> He's trying to, but, but, but that's how he keeps the cost down. Yeah, well, no, I, I can you appreciate know? that. Yeah. I did not, uh, did not end up calling in or logging in or anything. Yeah. To, to get the ticket, so I'll just no. have to hear from you what it's like. You'll yeah, have to come well, back I'm, and I'm tell excited me. about that one. That's like one show that I've always wanted to go see. So yeah, and that's out at the Canadian Tire, Tire Center, Center Garth yeah. Brooks on April first. It's the long weekend. Oh, not the long week. The first weekend in April. First week. Okay, and uh, I guess that'll be a better trip to the CTC Center than you had last night when you went out <laughs> to watch the hockey game and the Senators lost. Again, they almost had it, didn't they? In the third, when they scored I was on that the goal. air. Oh, were you? <laughs> well, they scored a goal in the third, and I thought, you know, they had enough time to maybe even it up, tie it up, and then the Washington Capitals scored again, and then everybody started to leave the. Yeah, the I just hear Melnick is ready to fire everyone. <laughs> Did he fire any? You know popcorn sellers on the way out <laughs> just out of anger no actually i sat in a suite last night because of course it was stew strong night last yep. night and um they raised over thirty two thousand dollars last night for the fund that Stu created which was amazing it was a very overwhelming evening um Stu was just he didn't know what to expect when we went there as a family and and we were invited into melnick suite to to check out the game and um yeah, I've lived here all my life, and I always knew it was a very generous and amazing city. And, and then last night when kind of the tables are turned and the focus and spotlight is on you, it's very overwhelming. But, uh, yeah, aside from the loss, it was a great night. And Melnick <laughs> was in our suite, and he is just the most gentle, uh, amazing man. He's just he's very I, different. I haven't met him. He's, he seems pretty laid back. He is. He is very laid back. <laughs> other and he than was when great he's with angry yeah, and wanting to that, fire exactly. everyone. Exactly. <laughs> Only when he's not angry with the team. Um, um, but yeah, no, he was great with the kids, and he, he talked to them, and it was just he was, he's he's awesome. So I mean, I, I was reading out about it. We played some of the audio. The Belgian national anthem played yeah. before the game. Uh, that was that was impressive. But also, I was talking about the you know up on the school scoreboard. Text this to this number yeah. to donate money, and, and I guess people responded. Yeah, and they passed around a bucket like old school, like a, a KFC bucket. Yeah, a KFC <laughs> bucket went around the building, and. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, uh, when Stu was diagnosed with uh, leukemia, it was um, we, we both decided that we were either going to, you know, be really positive or you can, you know, curl up in a corner and woe is me. And, and we just decided that for the kids, because we have a 10-year-old and an 8-year-old, mm-hmm. that the, the best course of action was to be positive. Now, there's a, there's a lot of days behind the scenes where it, he has crappy days, mm-hmm. and, you know, and, and he just doesn't want to get out of bed. But, you know, that's... You know, the determination to get better and, and just come back to work and be back at the Sens. And so I said to him last night, I'm like, well, look, they're not making it to the playoffs, so you don't have to worry about missing playoff <laughs> games. So maybe they did you a favor. Um, but, he, you know, he's hoping to be back in October. So Yeah, well, we're all hoping so as well. Yeah. And uh, all wearing Stu Strong t-shirts. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks, Connie. You're welcome. All right. If you haven't supported Stuntman Stu in his battle with leukemia, then do. Buy a, a Stu Strong t-shirt. It's from Unsung Heroes. Just Google Unsung Hero T-shirts, find that and um, and get behind the cause. One of many ways to support the, you know, the great work that they're doing. I mean, Connie Bernardi and uh, and Stu Schwartz deciding to turn a um, a patch of sour grapes and grapes into um, some good wine, and kudos to them for that. Don't go away. When we come back, we'll open up the phone lines. You want to talk about any of the issues we've discussed tonight? You want to talk about ISIS? You want to talk about Brussels? You want to talk about Stu? Garth Brooks coming to Ottawa? Why progressives think they own your money? All of that coming up. 521 Talk, 521 8255. 
Beyond the News with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. He's hated in official Ottawa, which is okay in our books. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. We've talked about some heavy issues today. The death of an MP in office. We've talked about the um, the penchant, to use that French term, the penchant among liberals, among progressives, to to view your money as their money. You know, you can have your allowance once we take our tax and... We let you keep what we think you can keep. Talk to Matthew Fisher from Brussels about what's going on. Warren Kinsella from Toronto, who is in disagreement with his party to a large extent over the issue of whether we're actually at war in Ottawa. Or, sorry, we're at war with ISIS. So I welcome your thoughts on that. Are we at war with ISIS? If so, what's the answer? How do we do it? How do we actually fight back against this terrorist group that we know the general territory that they control, but they also seem to control minds around the world, so how do we fight back against it? Welcome your thoughts on carding. I want to read to you again the the email that Chris sent in. Thoughtful email. I like it. Because I'm of mixed minds of carding. I understand why police want to do it. And I understand that the rationale, they want to stop crime before it happens. So they want to be able to stop someone and say, hey, what are you doing? What are you up to? And Chris writes in and says, I grew up in a bad low-income project and have experienced carding firsthand. There didn't seem to be a week that went by that I didn't get stopped by the police and questioned. Like you mentioned, I did pay attention in law class. During these stops, I would question why and if I was under arrest. When I was told I wasn't under arrest, I would say, then fine, I'm leaving. They would then say, you are free to leave, but if you leave, we will arrest you. Who's to say that won't happen? Well... If police do that, that is abuse of power. So I understand that. But where do you stand on carding? Where do you stand on the wind government coming up with new regulations? And I want you to think about it before you reflexively say that Kathleen Wynne is always bad. How would you feel about being carded? Is the idea that I haven't done anything wrong, therefore I have nothing to fear? Is that good enough? Or should the police you know, should the police be allowed to just stop you and demand your papers? Papers, please. Papers. Should that be allowed? Spent a bit of time earlier talking about Jim Hilliard dying in office, conservative MP for Medicine Hat Cardston, an area of southern Alberta. Um Hillier was, as I said earlier, a Mormon, member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Interesting note is that the first Mormon temple outside of the United States of America was 
in that section of Alberta. I think it was, in fact, it might have been in Cardston. I'd have to look that up. But while we pay honor to him, I want you to think about the 25-year-old man who was critically injured and then died while working on a construction site. My father worked industrial construction. He saw far too many people die. He also taught me to to wonder whether people had followed their own safety rules, and he was guilty of not always following them himself. The worst that happened to him was he was injured. But the people that are out there building, constructing things for us in the horrible climate often pay a price far too high as well. Five two one talk five two one eight two five five star five eighty on Bell Mobility. Paul in Ottawa, you're on Beyond the News. Hey Brian, how are you? I, I'm well. I'm I'm alive and breathing. So today, <laughs> yeah. and considering you got a the, pulse, you got con- a pulse. Considering the week that's been, that's good news. Yeah, I got a handful of comments. Uh, some of them most on your on your topic tonight. But insofar as the carding, uh, if a policeman approaches me, uh, I think I'm within my right to say, "Okay, uh, why did you stop me?" Show me what you have. Um, and I think if they can't, if they're not in a position to provide that to me, I'm just going to say, fine, uh, just to let you know I'm leaving, and I've got my cell phone on me, I'm recording this conversation. And, 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 and you know what? I, I get that, Paul, and I'd encourage people to do that. <clears throat> um, and I don't want a confrontational relationship with police. No, neither I, I. I really don't, but I understand where people like Chris are coming from. Good point. I grew up in a bad neighborhood. He would say, if you're not arresting me, I, I, you know, I'm walking. And they'd say, well, we'll just arrest you if you walk away. Yeah. You yeah. know, if, if that's happening, and I really hope it's not, but if that's happening, then that's an abuse of power. Yeah. That, and by the way, that, that text or email from him was, was tremendous. It's right to the point. Um, my next comment would be about liberal government. Um, I guess I come from the old school where call a spade a spade. If the economic, if the if the EU countries are calling genocide genocide, help me understand that, bro. Why why are we not able to do that? Like, do we not agree with it? Or, well, uh, you know, I went to um, conservatives, including people that were high up in foreign affairs in the former government. I said, yeah, okay, I get it. I want it called genocide. Why didn't you call it genocide? You guys were in power. Yeah. And they said that their goal when they were in government was to say, let's find at least one ally to come along with us so it's not Canada standing alone. Got and, it. of course, with the stance that Stephen Harper took on Israel and he took a strong hand, stance against jihadis, we played some of the audio last night. Yeah, If he'd come out alone and done that, well, then that might have dissuaded some of the other allies. So they were they were trying to convince them. that, And, of course, they lost power back in October. The EU came out on February 4th and declared genocide. Yeah. The Vatican has since come out and declared genocide. And last week, the U.S. Um, the liberals so far are trying to say, well, the U.S. isn't part of the, crim- the International Criminal Court. Yeah. Fine. Fine, they're not. And they never should be. And we shouldn't be. But... The fact is the European Union countries are, and they've declared it a genocide in a very detailed statement that I read out in part last night. 
I heard it. Yeah, we, and, we, should, and, we should be joining in on this. Yeah, and Matthew Fisher <clears throat> tonight, by the way, uh, I'm going to kind of kind of bandage your comments together. Uh, your interview with him was tremendous. Um, but well, all all, all the uh, credit to Matthew, a great Canada boy. Yeah, there you go. But the other thing is, and and I'm of the mind. I, I don't understand this, and hopefully you can help me out, Brian. Is that if we're pulling away all of our forces, whether it's a, the fighter planes or, or or the boots on the ground, like I kind of think, and I don't want to think like ISIS. God, I'm not that bad, but they're saying, hey, if you're part of any country that's taking action against us, you're on our to-do list, and you know we're going to get you. And Toronto was one good example. Like, am I wrong on that? No, no, they. I I think that was a terrorist attack, and I think we'll find out that, yeah, at the least, the. Uh, uh, I, I can't remember his first name. His last name is Ali. I will yes. bet that there was some kind of uh, some kind of <clears throat> training, coercion, discussion online with ISIS supporters. They have whole units directed at trying to target Canadians. So yeah. we know this is happening. You're right. Call a spade a spade. Just, just a couple of quick comments. I know you got your call probably backed up. Um, but um, about Eugene Melnick. Um, I think he's a great guy, but my concern is that about two, three years ago, he tried to get a partner, and then the other day in the media, he said, well, you know, we need that playoff money. If I'm just adding it together, I really hope that he wins the LeBreton flat because I think he needs the money, but finally, uh, you talked about music. You had my wheels going. Uh, I saw about a year ago uh, a really great performance by Sammy Hager, mm-hmm. and it was in, uh, well, Ruth Eckert Hall, and I'll tell you, the stage was like Las Vegas. If you ever get to see him, <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you, Brian, you'd be rocking and rolling. If you ever saw Sammy Hager, uh, you know, like unbelievable. He, owns, unbelievable. he owns a tequila bar in Vegas. Uh, that's about as close as I've come to him, although I just missed. <laughs> uh, took my family down to Port Dover a few years ago. Uh, was staying at my dad. My dad, my late father, I had a place out there uh, on Port Dover on Lake Erie. And yeah. just missed David Lee Roth, who fell in love with Port Dover and was hanging out there. I got to run, Paul. Thanks for yeah. the call. Listen, thank you. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. You're on the line. We'll get to you in moments. Stick around. News Talk Radio 580 CFRA. I spent most of the next days looking at the x-rays talking about the options and talking about sweet a little bit of Tim McGraw today live life like you were dying maybe it's my age maybe it's that Rob Ford just two years older than me Jim Hillier three years younger than me Two politicians dying within days of each other. 
Arnold Chan, a liberal MP who's much younger than me, announcing that he's going to have to step back from his work due to cancer. All of this going on. Making me stop, making me think. Welcome your calls. 521-TALK, 521-8255, star 580 on Bell Mobility. There's a man that I would go see in concert. I'd love to see Garth Brooks, but I'd definitely, I'd definitely go see Tim McGraw if I had the chance. Gloria in Ottawa, you're on Beyond the News. Hi, good evening. Should I ask you about concerts, Gloria? No. <laughs> no? I mean, like, not even Paul Anker and Neil Diamond. Well, uh, I'm I'm up sort of up on on what's being played, but uh, I don't go to concerts. <laughs> You're calling in I, I about am a Carden, fan. though. I am I am a fan behind the scenes. <laughs> yes, I do. Uh, you know, uh, you have a lot of good topics uh, tonight. That's for sure. But well, I'm, thank you. I just like to give the other side of the coin uh, about carding. This this lawyer that you interviewed, this Michael Spard, if I'm my, Michael Spratt. Oh, Spratt. Okay. And, and Michael, let, let's be clear, and, and I should have said this earlier, Michael and I have sparred online and on air before uh, on various issues, but I think we're generally in agreement on this one, that, that carding can, it can go too far, absolutely. But you, you want to give the other side of that. Yes, I do. You know, the thing is, he's, he was using the R word, uh, racism, which is mm-hmm. a highly charged word to begin with when he's referring to the police doing their job to curb crimes in an area. and, uh, and it, It's why I put it to him about the whole issue of mm-hmm. how many people of... I mean, there, there are articles written in Ottawa media and elsewhere by Somali mothers mm-hmm. about how prevalent Somali youth are in the criminal justice system. Yes. Because they're upset. And and he said, well, you know, he was hesitant to go there, and I understand why he may be. There could be a very good reason for it. I mean, the the, the head of the police association, Mr. Scoff, he has said that the uh, Ottawa police are only in an area due to residents' complaints of either gunshots, drugs being sold, or fights. And they are not uh, supposed to, according to Mr. Scoff, they're not supposed to be doing any racial uh, profiling. But the Ottawa police, they're there to investigate these serious complaints. And part of their job is to question uh, suspects in the area. But uh, I feel... Okay, well, so they can question them. Yes, but but they're, they're, they also have uh, almost both hands tied behind their back. I mean, with this new law, the police must must tell these these people that they have the right to refuse being in, investigated. But Gloria, we've always had the ability to tell police to take a hike. Well, th- the thing is this: that that's our right. Okay, that's the right. But the thing is, what will happen is if, if all the way down the line, no, everybody walks away from them and they can turn their backs on the police, this will gr- greatly hamper the police's ability to investigate crimes. And, and to me, it will make the streets more dangerous for law-abiding citizens. Oh, okay, but what would, you, what would you have happen? Would you have it so that pol- people must answer the police and give up information even though they're not being charged? even though they're not under investigation? 
to me, if if there is is a, a, a complaints of crimes being committed in that mm-hmm. uh, area, to me, police have the right to to question people in that area that they come across because there's and, a and, and and you're right, and they do, and 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 Mr. Spratt said if. If police see someone walking along with a crowbar and a bag over their uh, shoulder and they know there's been break-ins, they still have the ability to stop them, and they've always had that. Well, well, okay, but now under this new law— So it's not a new law, it's just regulation. A new regulation. Gloria, due due to the charter and before the charter, going back hundreds of years to Magna Carta, I mean, it's not—don't blame Pierre Trudeau's charter. It's not Pierre Trudeau's charter. This— this is basic freedoms. This is going back hundreds of years. We've been able to say no, and, and, and we should be able to say no, and the state shouldn't be able to say, show us your papers or we'll arrest you. If you have a reason to arrest me, arrest me, but otherwise, leave me alone. Okay, but the thing is, I got, okay, I got to residents run, so make have it quick. a right to be uh, safe, and, and, and there's a possibility. But you that, also have the right to be safe from yes. police as well. But the, these guys could eventually. There is an eventuality right. that they Gloria, could be running the streets, and and if they right. can refuse to be questioned and stopped, well, and things we've are al- bad enough as it is. We've always had that right, Gloria. Thanks for the call. I got to run, and we'll talk again. I hope. Don't give up on me, Gloria. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. Back in a moment. Looking at the X-rays, talking about the options, and talking about sweet time. Asked him when it sank in This might really be the real end How's it hit you When you get that kind of news Man, what'd you do? And he said I went skydiving I went Rocky Mountain climbing I went 2.7 seconds On a full name Fumanchee And I Said someday I hope you get the chance to live like you were dying. You're listening to the leader of the unofficial opposition, the rebel himself. Beyond the news with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. A little bit of a happy Monday is in step on. Happy Mondays or Woeful Wednesdays. It's been a, a strange week. As I've said, we Rob Ford died yesterday. Uh, conservative MP Jim Hillier from Southern Alberta died in his office on Spark Street here in Ottawa earlier today. A liberal MP announcing he's got cancer. That's why I was playing Tim McGraw earlier. Live life like you were dying. And um, wow, it's... Um, just been a very odd week. And then speaking with Connie Bernardi, whose husband, Stuntman Stu, going through cancer right now. And, and she was out at the, the Stu Strong event at the uh, Canadian Tire Centre last night. Yeah, an up and down week, to say the least. But that's why I had Connie on, to talk about fun stuff, to talk about entertainment, to talk about concerts, because she's so good at that. And well, we just have fun together. We only met a little while ago, but we have fun chatting. Wade in Ottawa, you're calling in about concerts. Hello, Wade. Oh, sorry, uh, Mr. Lilly. Uh, you know, again, 
I, I, I don't want to make light of what's been happening in the past couple of days or these tragedies and these but, deaths. But you you, you got to light you got to keep living. You got to keep living, and I'm pushing fifty two, and uh, I got some health issues, so I'm I'm striving myself. But on a lighter note, I really like to talk about the concerts. If you give me a minute, yeah, no, I, I, absolutely, I love that. I, I, you know, I, I need some levity. Sixty-four dollars, mm-hmm. including Voyager to Toronto to see the late Michael Jackson in the Victory Tour with his brothers, nineteen eighty-six. I was going to say the Victory Tour. That's back in the eighties. So you saw all, all, all the Jackson brothers, or was it a Michael tour? And some of his brothers were there. They were all there. They were all there. Wow. They were all there. Because they needed the money, too. So he pumped them up and said, you sure me, you get a couple of bucks. But the thing is, one of the kickers, when the one of the ladies saw, his backup, you usually get a backup band. Yeah. He had one man, a juggler. And the first quotes when he came on stage, because this was C&E outdoors, he said, glad to get my balls out in the cold. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> and he was playing to the Beatles music. It was absolutely a spectacle. Unbelievable. So now, so th- uh, this this is 1986. It was 64 dollars. That included your bus there. Like, w- was it a, was it an organized bus from Ottawa to Toronto, or you just happened to hop on the? Uh... No, no, it was a package deal, 64 dollars. And back then, my girlfriend was a little upset with me because I didn't take her, but I told her they only had one seat available. Oh, that was that was another story in itself. Uh, yeah, I, I, I won't ask you whether that's true. I don't want to get you in trouble even all actually, these years we, later. We actually married later on it. <laughs> but the, the first concert was in Ottawa, um, uh, Genesis, in the 80s, with the, just when Gabriel left. But the concert, they had double drum set. Hold on. You saw Genesis while Peter Gabriel was still fronting them? No, Gabriel just left. Oh, he had just left. Okay. I'm not so quite Dolly, as jealous. I'm still jealous, but not quite as jealous. But it, it, I had never seen double drum set. Phil went on one drums, and the uh, uh, the drummer, or the regular drummer, was on, and they had a freaking fight. Oh, it's crazy. Now, the, the other caller, Van Halen, with, uh, what's his name there? Hagar. Sammy, Sammy Hagar, yeah. No, 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 no. I seen Van Halen in the 80s, Ottawa, with David Lee Roth. And you can't compare. This guy's like a gymnast, man. He's jumping, flipping all over the place. It was, it was ridiculous. Well, like I said, the only time I've come close to um, uh, seeing uh, David Lee Roth was yeah. uh, back in um, what year was it? This well, would you're have a little been... younger than me, so you probably see him in the 90s, I think. No, no. I came close to running into him in the 2000s. My kids were young. and. Oh, I'm trying to remember how old my kids were. Um, we're maybe talking 2008, 2009. Went down to, uh, whole family went down to Lake Erie, and, and he okay. just, someone had taken him. For some reason, someone had taken David Lee Roth to Port Dover, this little port town, beach town on Lake yeah, Erie, and he fell in love with it. And he uh, apparently he was going around all over the place looking at buying stuff. Oh, are you kidding well, you know but, what? So I, I, that, I, I did see perfect. one concert with um, with double drum sets, and that was Ringo Starr and his all-star band. And I've talked about this before. Okay. Nin- 1989, Ringo okay. Starr played drums. Zach Starkey, his son, was on drums at different times. Okay. Levon Le- Helm from the band, yeah, I believe, was there. 
And um, just trying to think of everyone. Uh, Joe Walsh from the Eagles played. Uh, Nils Lofgren, I think, was at that one uh, from the E Street Band. Uh, j- just you, a fantastic show. I think I was with you there because I've seen David Bowie in Montreal. Uh, no, I, I haven't seen many concerts. I think the only concert I saw in Montreal, and it was from a horrible location up in a press box, was uh, Bon Jovi a bunch okay. of years ago. But uh, mo- most of the concerts have been here in Ottawa or in Toronto. I've seen two late uh, entertainers. I've seen the late Stevie Ray Vaughan in Montreal with Dire Straits. That would and have been something. Stevie Ray was back up for Dire Straits, which was ridiculous. He should have <laughs> been the headliner, and Dire Straits should have been a backup. You know, that, you know, if you ask Mark Knopfler, he might agree. And Alice Cooper, seen him twice. And his second concert at the NEC here in Ottawa was mm-hmm. absolutely amazing. I have friends that keep meeting Alice Cooper every time he's in town. Stevie I, I, Wonder, Ottawa, seen him. Eddie Murphy, seen him in Ottawa. Pink Floyd, Lounge Down, Outdoors. Oh, man, back in the day before they blew... Uh, no, sorry, that that was an Ivor Wynn story. Big, yeah, yeah, yeah. They stopped having the screen. But I'm going to finish off quickly because I know you've got other callers. The Cardi. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm I'm of mixed race, black and white. Okay. And uh, I thought this was odd, and it it still kind of haunts me today. Not in I don't know. It's just I find it so weird. It was uh, I was in Orleans, and I was leaving a friend's place at about two o'clock in the morning. And I get pulled over by the police, and I'm alone in the car. And the police officer gets out of the car, grabs his uh, his flashlight, comes right up to my uh, right up to my window, mm-hmm. pokes at me, looks at me, looks in the car. He didn't say boo. He went back in the car and took off. That's weird. That's. Still bugs me. I still got it in my head today. I, I, don't I guess he figured there's no, you know, nothing going on with you. Move along. I guess. Didn't even say boo. All right, Wade, thanks for the call. Okay. Hey, you, you have thoughts on carding? 521-TALK, 521-8255, star 580 on Bell Mobility. Dawn in Bell's Corners. You're on Beyond the News. Good evening, Brian. Good evening. Uh, I have a comment about carding and then a another comment that. Relates to carding, but only in a bigger picture. And if you have concert stories, we take those, too. Yeah, I might throw a few of those when I'm done. <laughs> okay. Uh, Your thoughts on carding uh, first? Absolutely not. You know, I don't, uh, the thing is, uh, the Iron Curtain has already fallen. Let's leave it down. I want to be able to walk or drive around without having to show my papers. As yeah, you put they're it. free. Okay? They're, in my view, Don, they're free yeah. to ask, and we're free to say no. Exactly. And, and and I want to keep it that way. Uh, what did the police do years ago before, you, you know, they went uh, on, you know, they detained you if they had reasonable suspicion. And if there was more than that, you were arrested. So we got along with carding years ago. I believe we can still do so today. Also, in a broader picture, and this may be a bold statement to some, I'm sure, uh, I always thought that Canada was free. And free men have rights and slaves have privileges. When did a lot of things in this country start to become privileges? That's all, that's been bothering me for years now. And I'll give you one uh, example. Too many things. License. Yeah, too many things are just moving into the category of privilege. And people are sitting back and allowing it. The more you allow it, the less rights you're going to have, but the more privileges you will have. And that, although that's not directly related, I think it's, you know, there is a similarity there. 
they're close enough that they I can make that comment. And uh, as far as David Lee Roth or, or Sammy Hagar, <laughs> I've seen Van Halen. Sammy, absolutely. I don't care how many times David Lee Roth could jump, flip, whatever. Uh, Sammy had a better voice for the sound. And I've seen uh, Black Sabbath, uh, Ozzy Osbourne, Judas Priest. Oh, you're a really uh, old, hard rock, classic rock guy. Absolutely. Uh, so, to this day. So I just he, turned 51. So. He, here's my question then. Okay. Is what the heck has ACDC done to their guitars that the second you hear an ACDC song start, you know it's them? Do they do they, they, have, do they have a special tuning? Are they putting it through a pedal? What is I it? I, you know, it I, 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 I'm playing all kinds of dance music and country and, yeah. and, and, and happy Mondays and everything. I listen to everything. But you hear an ACDC song and everyone has the same reaction. Oh, yeah, it's ACDC. It's the sound. It's the sound. Yeah, Absolutely. Okay, but it's, I mean, it's, not, it's not just the guitars. And you, I think you're right. There is a little element of it is tuning. But they have a sound that is all their own. You know, like, look at, uh, you shook me all night long. Even the country boys out in, out in the hicks, you know, out in the weeds, whatever you want to say, they love that song. It's there's something about their sound and its uniqueness. And that, I think, you know, as... But, but as far why as, they've survived so long. As far as I can tell, Angus Young just plays a plain old Gibson guitar. You know, there, there's some of the um, the Beatles songs, uh, some of the early British Invasion stuff, and, and some of the California rock later on, like the Birds. They all played Rickenbackers, and Rickenbackers have a different sound. Yeah, the Gibsons were... The, the Gibson think, were does not have, a, you know, some kind of specific sound. And yet... It's like you hear an ACDC song, and you're like, boom, that's them. I, I want to know what it is. Maybe somebody knows. If you know, give me a call. Uh, Don, thanks for okay. the call. Thank you, Brian. 521 Talk, 521 8255. Star 580 on Bell Mobility. You're calling from out of town, listening online. It's 1 800 580 2372. You still want to get in on carding? You want to get in on progressive zoning your money? Or you want to tell me why ACDC has that sound? Call now. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly. Join the resistance on Facebook and Twitter at CFRA Ottawa. So plenty of people upset with me on the Twitter machine. Obviously, folks listening and then commenting online, but not calling in. Call in 521-TALK, 521-8255. Uh, Cameron Patton saying, suggesting to your listeners that police in Canada should have to file a charge to detain or card people would be absurd. Not saying they have to file a charge to to card someone, but yeah, um, you have no reason to detain me unless you're going to file a charge. Why are you holding me? Police should not be allowed to hold you unless there's a reason. To say otherwise is to say that I am not a free man, and I am a free man. IT says, um, let me scroll up, walking away from police is promoting disrespect. Sometimes that disrespect is warranted. I like to point to a little thing called High River. I could point to carpet installers being shot by the SQ in Quebec, people that were just going about their business and literally installing carpets. Um, Police barged in shot them, 
barns were burned in Quebec by the Mounties at one point, but High River, where they they broke into homes that were not in the middle of the flood and seized firearms. Hmm. Why'd they do that? Biggest civil rights violation in Canadian history. Still yet to be taken up in the House of Commons because the Conservatives were in power when it was happening and the two opposition parties did not want to give any credence to the concerns of gun owners. People's homes, their doors were kicked in by the Mounties, their guns were taken without cause. Locked homes, not in a flooded area. Doors kicked in, private property stolen. Yes, it was returned later, but still, in violation of the law. If you read the RCMP Public Complaints Commission report, police are not perfect. Police are human beings like every one of us. As far as I'm concerned, there was one perfect person that ever walked the earth. And this coming Friday, we're going to mark what we did to him, which was crucify him. We do not have perfection in any institution, police or otherwise. And it, if it offends you to, for me to say that I am a free man and I can walk away from police who want to question why I'm walking down the street when I'm doing nothing wrong, then perhaps we need to have a greater discussion about what our rights and freedoms really are. And I mean real rights and freedoms. I don't mean Trudeau's charter. There's some poppycock in there. There's some good stuff, but there's some poppycock. I'm talking about ancient rights. CP also says, you are mistaken. Canadians have never had the rights you are referring to ever. You may be thinking of the USA. Again, maybe we need to have a wider discussion. And Mike tweets in to say, that last caller, the cop, was probably looking for something very specific pertaining to a specific specific incident. Not him. Gone. I think he's referring to Wade, who called in about a strange incident with police. Uh, Jeremy writes in about an issue that hopefully we'll take up tomorrow. I'll try and find somebody on this. He reminds me that there are four people being held in the Philippines. Two of them are Canadians. One's a Norwegian and one is a Filipina. And they're being threatened by, with execution by beheading by a rebel group. Now, if you follow what's happening in the Philippines, generally we're talking about an Islamist separatist group. The Jihad is worldwide. It's not restricted to Brussels. It's not restricted to Syria. It's not restricted to Iraq. The Jihad is worldwide. We'll try and check in on this tomorrow because Jeremy is correct. There has not been enough on this issue over the next little while. You want to get in touch with me, it's easy. Beyond the news at CFRA.com. That's the email address. Facebook is Facebook.com slash Brian Lilly. Twitter, Twitter.com slash Brian Lilly. I, I, I try and keep it simple for you. And, of course, if you don't catch all of the show or you like what you hear, then please share it. The podcast goes up on all my social media sites later on tonight or first thing tomorrow morning. We'll be back tomorrow here on Beyond the News. This is News Talk 580 CFRA.